0: Are we live? Are we live? If you're watching this, it's because either I died last night, or, basically, it must be, and I died last night, or the uh, technology at Woodland Hills died, one of the two. Let's hope it was the Woodland Hills. Either way, you're listening to me now, because this is pre-recorded. I record these things on Saturday night. Uh, to an audience of three people, maybe four, and then we got maybe two back there, so a total of six. I hope you're all finding reasons to give thanks. Uh, remember, the more life throws at you reasons to be miserable, the more you've got to look for reasons to give thanks, because uh, that is the key to well-being, to happiness, all of that. Give thanks. The Bible tells us rejoice always, and so develop a mindset of gratitude. It really helps to write it down, keep a journal. At least at start, when you when you kind of jump start in this thing, write down whatever. Look around for things to be thankful for, and. I was just today thanking God for the my great neighbor kids. Got beautiful kids on both sides of us. I was watching them play today, you know, and they're all in the backyards, and, and they're just—all their imagination. And uh, just give thanks for that. It's a beautiful thing. A lot of ugliness in the world, but that is beautiful. So I've been asking the question, you know, during this period, like, just what does God want us—what what does God want me to learn from this pandemic? Uh— it's, just a, it's, a, it's a pattern interrupt, a time to do like a sabbatical, re-examine our life, reexamine some of our relationship with technology and all sorts of things, and let the Holy Spirit lead you. Um, and one of the things that I have been impressed with is just how it, it illustrates how human beings are all interconnected, uh, far more so than, than we Western people tend to think. I think with our Western grid, we, we tend to see individuals, and we define an individual over and against other individuals. You're an individual to the degree that you're not like somebody else. Uh, we'll see here in a little bit, the Bible has a, quite a different perspective on that. But we, we, we don't usually see how, just how humanity is one thing. We're, we're, we're bound together here. Uh, this, this pandemic, I think, has, has kind of highlighted that. Here's a little video that Dan Kent found uh, that illustrates uh, by, through the telephone network just how interconnected we are. Let's watch this. It'll be about 40 seconds.
1: We wanted to see the true footprint social gatherings like spring break beach crowds could really have on our society in the face of a global pandemic. To do so, we started with the big picture, powering our engine with billions of anonymized location data points from mobile devices across the globe. Using tectonics, we can then zoom in on specific regions. Here, we focus specifically on just one beach in Fort Lauderdale during the month of March. Again, each of these data points shown on the map corresponds to a unique mobile device active on a given day. You can see clearly that device activity spikes during the two-week stretch of early to mid-March corresponding to spring break. No surprise. Now, using an analysis called a spider query, we can actually track movement of these devices over the remaining weeks of March, seeing where these devices went after spring breakers left the beach. As we zoom further and further out, it becomes clear just how massive the potential impact just one single beach gathering can have in spreading this virus across our nation. It can be hard for us to realize sometimes just how connected our world really is until the data tells the stories that we just can't see.
0: You normally wouldn't think that something that goes on in China in December might affect you drastically uh, a couple months later over here in the States, but we are that interconnected. And that's what makes uh, tracking so difficult, to, to try to track down where you, how you contracted this. You have to look at all the people you came in contact with and who they kind of came in contact with, and in about three moves, you realize that we're all just so interconnected, far more so than people think. And that actually taps into, I think, a biblical truth. The Bible does uh, treat us as individuals. Everyone is responsible for their, their own choices. Um, you can't just say, oh, pass the buck, whatever. You're responsible for your choices. But that's not the final thing to be said for each of us. Um, yes, we're individuals, but we're also part of humanity. And in the Bible, humanity is a distinct thing. We tend to think of humanity as just the title for all the individuals that make up human beings. But from a biblical perspective, and this is kind of the, the, the norm in the ancient world, uh, they weren't as individualistic-minded as we were. They, they, they saw holes as being as real as the parts. And so humanity is a distinct thing. We're more than just the sum of our parts. Our togetherness means something. In, in one sense, you could, the, the Bible treats us as one being, the human race. Now, that realization, and there's a few things that I want to talk about with this over the next week or two, but, but um, it, that, that did something to me. Because when I started to think about humanity as a single being, well, I just I, it, it, it uncovered uh, an attitude in me that I did not like at all. Uh, so he, here's a confession. I wrote Repenting of Religion in 2000, I think it was 2003. And uh, it's all about how uh, love is the opposite of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Love is the opposite of judgment and how we need to collapse all of our judgments to agree with God that every person has unsurpassable worth. You've heard me preach this. If you've been here for any length of time, you know, you've heard me vamp on this. It's, it's I think, foundational to everything. Uh, and it's a little discouraging, disheartening, and baffling that 17 years later, I'm still struggling with that. Uh, and maybe that's just how it goes. There's layers and layers and layers. But I realize, I've discovered that. I, I've got, I love individual people. Uh, not naturally. I, that's accrued over time. I've been, gotten good at just blessing people, f- forsaking judgment, uh, telling myself a prequel, you know, all the kind of exercises I encourage people to do to be able to, without judgment, just love and bless people. I can do that with individuals. But when I think about the human race, I'm not so fond of them. It's like, And so I've been having to poke around at that. What is that? Humans. I don't like humans. How, how do you, when you think about humankind, does it create good feelings in you or does it create a kind of a uh, feeling in you? Or maybe it doesn't create any feeling at all. I don't know. Um, you know, some people, they're, they're, and I know I'm not alone here. Uh, maybe we haven't realized it, but I bet if you look in your heart, you have some kind of a, some folks, some of us have a judgment towards human beings, the humankind. And uh, uh, for some folks, that, that judgment, that cynicism is maybe rooted in the fact that, that human beings, as smart as we are, we're capable of such great things and doing just amazing things. And we're seeing that here in this, this, this pandemic. Amazing acts of heroism, but 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 yet throughout history we just keep on killing each other. We just keep on doing it, and and the more we develop technology, the better we get at killing, and and, and it's just, it's a cycle. And we never and so that can make you get cynical, like the human beings are so stupid. We just keep on killing each other. We can't find a way to not kill each other. For other people, it maybe is uh, the sort of disdain towards humanity would be rooted in a. Uh, maybe the way human beings have treated the earth and the, and the animal kingdom. You know, that was our first job responsibility, right? That's what we're supposed to do. Reflect God's loving care towards the earth and the animal kingdom. And, and, and we have not. We exploit the earth to a large degree. We treat animals as though they were vegetables and, and are okay putting them in environments where there's not a thing natural about their entire miserable existence. And that can make you cynical when you see how human beings can be so callous, so unmerciful to beings that, 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 that are dependent on us and, and that we're supposed to be caring for, care for them. But for me, I, I, I totally resonate with both of those and they hook me in on, a, on some of my judgment towards humanity. But I think the, the core of my judgment as I've kind of looked at this, like many things, it goes back to my dad. Uh, I, I don't know, how common is this? I, I've never asked this question before, but I grew up with a dad who's, probably the most common phrase I heard from his mouth was, that is so blankety-blank stupid. That is so blank all the time. Just stupid, that's so stupid. And often he would say, "Well, if, if, if you would just boom, if you would just boom, if they would just do this. And growing up, I thought, well, he's right. I mean, I, I, of course, as a kid, you're going to agree with your dad. You don't know all the options, but all, I, I grew up thinking my dad's smarter than people, and people are kind of dumb. Uh, he was particularly, he, thought, he was, I always heard how stupid it was to be a racist. No, that's, if you're going to be, you know, be judging people, <laughs> I guess racism, there are worse things you could judge. So I grew up with this idea that, you know, racists are really stupid. Unfortunately, for my dad, growing up in the Martin Luther King days and, you know, late 60s, uh, a lot of that was directed towards the South. And, and I, I, I inherited his, his judgment towards this people who, who have a Southern accent. And then he had this... Uh, uh think about Republicans. Oh, it was always the Republicans. George Wallace, and he was just ranting about that all the time. Nixon, and all the time. Now I want you, you, you Republicans, and I want to assure you that I have been f- delivered from my dad's prejudice. But he was a really prejudiced man, not racially, but man, he was prejudiced. He had, he had a, uh, I'm now seeing a judgment against people who were overweight. All sorts of things. He had this criteria. And it was all in the category of stupid. So I think I grew up to this idea that human beings are basically stupid which is really arrogant if you think about it. But yeah, there was that. I never felt like I belonged to or wanted to belong to team humanity. Like, you feel good about being part of humanity? Uh, I, I didn't. I never have. And now that got reinforced when I became a Christian. Um, I learned that people are made in the image of God, which is a beautiful thing. That's a great thing. But then again, the Bible isn't all that positive towards humanity. I mean, the Old Testament, you're always having God rail against the nations, and especially railing against Israel, and Israel's a microcosm for humanity, and the whole human race is fallen in rebellion against God. Even in the New Testament, you find that descriptions of human beings are, are we're enemies of God, uh, we're children of wrath. Uh, there's none that does righteousness, no, not one, even our righteousness, as is filthy rags. So that's Jeremiah 17, 3, not the New Testament. But you don't come away with a real necessarily positive feeling about Humanity from the Bible. But then Augustine, and we're, if you're Christian, you're part of this church tradition you got to be aware of, Augustine took already what was kind of a harsh view of humanity in the Bible, at least at times, but he injected it with steroids. And so for, for Augustine, he described uh, humanity as a mass perditiona, per, 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 perditionis. It's a mass of damnation. We're a damnable mass of just loathsome creatures. And according to Augustine, we should be giving God eternal thanks that he picked out a few of this mass to save while letting the rest go into eternal pain. Uh, not every up with humanity kind of a message there. And that's pretty much what got carried out throughout the Middle Ages. I've never thought of this question before, but it, as I'm thinking about it, I can't recall... Now, I'm not an art expert on this, but any painting in the Middle Ages where God is smiling. Now, if you know of a picture in the Middle Ages, let's, 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 let's go from Charlemagne, go back to like 800, all the way through 1400. Um, is there pictures of God smiling or being anything pleasant? Most of the pictures, it seems to me, the paintings, murals, the statues— they're ominous. They're you human beings are really ticking me off. That's in fact that's the attitude I had just growing up in Catholic school with all the statues around us. Of course, I was always ticking them off, so I would probably have that perspective. But yeah, it, and, and and see here's the thing. So that that view of human beings as loathsome creatures, we're just sort of maggots, and God's we're lucky that God even doesn't just squash us. Um, that is not too far from how pagans have always thought about the human race. If you look at the old stories that we tell about, that really reflect kind of our way of looking at the world, working at our God, looking at ourselves, human beings aren't—we are, don't come out that, 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 that good. Uh, we're, we tend to be pawns of the gods, slaves of the gods. Uh, in the Numa Elish, we're made out of—we're we're made by a good god, or at least the victorious god, but we're made out of the bad parts of the bad gods, so it, we're kind of they're expressing the sense that we're, there's something good about us, but there's something like yicky about us. And uh, it could come out, in the end, we're just pawns of God. And see, this is why. That, that, that long tradition of, of uh, uh, misanthropy, of, of that kind of looking down on humanity, that finally, in the, in the Renaissance and Enlightenment period, gave rise to a tremendous revolt. Uh, it's, that's still going on today. And, and the revolt basically was this. People came to the conclusion that, given this long history of these oppressive gods that make us into pawns and slaves and cause us to live our whole life in fear of them, they came to the conclusion that if we're going to be pro-human, you've got to be anti-God and anti-religion and anti-creeds, anti-all of that. We've got to liberate human beings to be all that they can be. You read Nietzsche and, and, and Sartre and uh, any of the famous atheists of the 20th century, 19th and 20th century, and they are rebelling against this oppressive God who is making us pawns and slaves. And, and I don't blame them. Uh, to a large degree, the God that they're rejecting is a God that I would, I, I would reject. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a human squishing God. But... All those, those factors coming together. I, they all, my dad's judgment. My then the, 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 What I inherited is I've become a Christian. And I realize that I've got this sort of disdain towards, I've been wrestling with this disdain towards humanity as a whole. I love individuals. Humanity as a whole. I, I've, I've really been wrestling with this. I have this judgment. Now, here's the thing. It is true in the Bible that you find these, these descriptions of human beings that are not at all complementary. In fact, the overall assessment of human beings is this. We, we were created in God's image. We have this great potential for good, but we also have a potential for evil because we're free. And we were put here on the earth and entrusted with the earth and the animal kingdom. And somehow we managed to get ourselves enslaved to these powers that are in rebellion against God. And now we have become in need of this desperate rescue and we're not completing the job that God gave us and we are, in fact, enslaved. We're capable of tremendous good and evil but now under the influence of this power it's the evil that seems to get expressed more often. So human beings are, are, are in fact, yeah, we're lost. We're estranged from God. We're stupid. We, we, we put ourselves in this position. But Jesus reveals what God's like. And This week, as I've been thinking about this, I noticed once again that Jesus, he didn't walk around and ticked off. These stupid human beings. I mean, he comes to earth here. He's God. He's, he's, He's the embodiment of Yahweh. If anyone had a right to be saying these stupid human beings, oh, so stupid. If anyone had a right to do that, it would be Jesus. But he doesn't do that. In fact, the gospel sometimes describe him as looking out at the crowds and having compassion. He has compassion. And people then were just as stupid as people are today. We're all stupid. Uh, they were just as sinful as we are today. We're sinful. But Jesus didn't walk around, he didn't walk around zapping people the way Zeus and Thor and all the other gods do. These human beings, you just zap them once in a while just to relieve your anger. He never did that. In fact, he doesn't express anger towards human beings at all except for those who are putting other people into oppression who are leading other people into oppression like the Pharisees and religious leaders and the high and mighties of this world. Yeah, he gets ticked off with them, but towards the common people, the run of the mill, the average ordinary stupid sinful human being like you and me, Jesus has his compassion. In fact, in fact, uh, he's he's riding into Jerusalem at one point, Luke 19. And this is right before he's crucified. And he announces this judgment that's going to come on Jerusalem because they're going to crucify him. And they're saying, he says, you, you, you didn't know the ways of peace. You rejected the Lord who came to bring you peace. And, and, and now this judgment is coming on you. And even though he's going to suffer that judgment, and he's describing this to them, the, the Romans are going to come and they're going to slaughter and kill and all of this. But as he's saying this, as he's running into Jerusalem, Luke describes him as wailing. He uses this word kleo. It can can mean just crying, ordinary crying, but it's also the word you use when you're wailing. He's crying. He's sorrowful. Even though he's going to suffer at the hands of these people, his overall—and he's talking about a judgment. You guys, the judgment's coming. The consequences of your sin are going to come upon you. But his attitude is one of sorrow and grief. He's wailing. And then on the cross— Human sin, human stupidity, all the stuff that we always get mad about with each other, never towards ourselves usually, but towards one another, all those things got him on the cross. And uh, if anyone had a reason to complain about the stupidity and the ignorance and the wrongfulness of human beings, it'd be Jesus on the cross. Instead, one of his last words, very few breaths to spare. He's being asphyxiated here. He's suffocating in slow motion. That's how you died on this thing on the cross. And he uses one of those precious, precious breaths to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I find that to be extraordinary. As I'm saying here, I get, I just find it to be extra, and that's just, it, not extraordinary, that's not the word. That's just wild. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it's, it's, a, and, and we, we, don't think that he's still pleading with this wrathful father, like, oh, father, don't, don't boil them. You know, don't, don't cook them. He'll listen to me, cook me instead. No, if you see Jesus, you see the father. There's no separation between the father and the son when it comes to character or, or will or determination. And so this is the will of God to forgive because he knows how ignorant people are. And we we see something. And most of all, this struck me this week, is that the very fact that Jesus became a human being and then became our sin and became our curse out of love for humanity tells us how God values humanity. Not just individuals, but humanity. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And so if, if God is willing to go to this extreme to show what we are worth to him, how dare any of us who claim to follow that God was revealed in Jesus to disparage something that God puts such a premium value on. As I have been doing, I think, most of my life. Um, then Jesus tells us, as we, we noted this last week, he gives these uh, illustrations about how, how, how much God loves us and how desperate God is for us. And so he tells the story of that lady we talked about last week who had uh, lost a coin and she just sweeps her house, lights a candle, sweeps the house until she finds it. And I, I think there are, as I mentioned last week, that he's talk, she's talking about, or Jesus is talking about, this woman's necklace. Uh, it's, it, what she lost was just a denarii, a day's wages. But, but for peasants in that environment, they would sometimes give as a wedding gift, a betrothal gift, like a wedding ring, a, a necklace of 10 uh, denarii, representing the perfection of their love. It was just a common peasant way of, of expressing love. But that would, that would make this so precious to her. And if one of those got lost, then the, the, the necklace is ruined. She's got to find that, that lost denarii. And then he tells the story of the, the good shepherd in Luke 15, uh, who, when one of his sheep gets lost, he leaves the 99 and goes out and looks for that one lost sheep. And the whole point of these stories is to say, this is what God thinks of you, because you also are a sinner that is lost. The Pharisees don't want to hear that, but the common people that Jesus is talking to, he says, this is what God thinks of you. And the main point, and I don't think I've ever noticed this as strong as I did this week, but the main point is, he's got to get every last one. That's the point. He's not content with 99%. You think that, I got 99%, that, that's enough. No. It's incomplete. The, the, the necklace is incomplete. There's something, I've got to find that last one. So both of the stories say he searches until he finds until he finds, and the why is because it's not just about the individuals; it's about humanity. He loves humanity, and see that reflects the Bible's understanding of corporate personality, this corporate whole of humanity uh, that that is so foreign to our way of thinking. And I know this all raises right now questions about universalism. Is Gregor universalist? And I'll get to that in a little bit, but be, but don't prejudge these these verses. And so often we. We assume we, we already know what, the, we, we assume what the verse can say because of what we already believe, and so we don't let the verse say what it wants to say. Let's let the verse say what it wants to say, and then we'll have to wrestle with it for sure. It will challenge us, but we first got to, if, if we water it down, we'll miss the heart of God. God is in love with humanity. And you find this, this, this corporate personality, this corporate humanity expressed in several ways. Um, one is uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Passage I've, I've uh, read here before. And here Paul just says, as all were in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. As all die in Adam, just as, in the same way, to the same degree, as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. What does that mean? Well, whatever it means, God's clearly got his prize on the whole thing, right? As he's looking at Adam. He wants that whole Adam to be now in Christ. Uh, he makes the same point a little more forcefully in Romans five, listen to this, and and here it's even stronger. He says, "For if by the starting with verse seventeen, for if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people." So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all. So, just as, so also. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And many there doesn't contrast with all. He's using all and many interchangeably. The concept of many just refers to the multitude. How how many are in the all, all right? The multitude, I think, would probably be a, a better translation. So then he says, uh, so, so just as through the disobedience of one man, the many, the multitude, were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Praise God. Where sin did increase, he says in verse 20, grace increased all the more. So there's this, it's not just, just as they were in Adam, so also they will be in Christ. But in Paul, there's this, 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 so much more. How much more? The aboundingness of grace. Grace doesn't just break even. God, like, over-saves, over-corrects, over-does it. So somehow, it's not just as all we're in Adam, all will be in Christ, but how much more will all be in Christ? There's just how much more going on there. And, and what's going on there, I think, is, is just this. It's capturing the fact that we human beings, we are one in our, our, our image of God. We're made in the image of God. That's one of the things that unifies us. Maybe the most common denominator. But we're also unified in Adam. And that is just a biblical way of saying we're unified in our fallenness, in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, in our woundedness, in our frailness, in our weakness. We are one. We're united in Adam. You're part of, bringing, you're part of team brokenness by virtue of being a, a human being. And all the negative things that the Bible says are applied to this team brokenness. We really are, apart from God, in really serious shape. Not just needing a little help No, we're, we're, we're in desperate condition That is a true thing That's our unity in Adam We are enslaved and, and, and In fact, it seems to me that In this pandemic It's less now than it was early on But there's a sense of a, 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 a esprit de corps A shared, I don't know a, I think people sense that That unity and brokenness there's a humility there. We're, we're subject to something that is beyond us, that can kill us, that we can't entirely control. And there's a, I don't know, it's, it's, we're all being afflicted. We're all sharing this pain. Now that, that's kind of getting lost. But, but I think there is, if we're, if we're sensitive to it, this, this commonality of uh, our, 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 our lostness. We are all in this together. And the pandemic illustrates that. But we're also united in Christ. Somehow, the work of Christ encompasses everybody. Now, here's a passage I didn't tell you I was going to read, but I just now decided that I want to. And so, uh, it's, it's 2 Corinthians 5. Listen to this. And this is a passage I've been drawn to the last three years. I just think it's, it's, it's a gold mine. It's a gold mine. It's hardly ever been mined. It's just gold. But Paul says this, that he says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, he says, if we're out of our mind, as some say it's for God, but if we're in our right mind, it's for you. Verse, starting with verse 13, verse 14. Because it's Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. In some sense, all have died. Christ died for all. And then he goes on, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for him and was raised again. Who died for them and was raised again. Okay, so no, no. All in some sense died. Let's figure that out. But in some sense, all died. But there's, and that's done. Christ accomplished that. But then Paul draws this thing that's not yet done. And he says, he did that so that now, since you're all dead, he wants everyone to live for the one who brought them to life. Uh, he wants to no longer live for themselves, but to live for God. That God won't do for you. That is still left to be undone. But that you are in Christ, uh, that, 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 that much has been done. And that is why, we're, that's how we're supposed to uh, look at the world. Uh, he says this, So from now on, starting with verse 16, we regard no one from the human, from the worldly point of view. The way normal people, ordinary worldlings look at other people, you judge on the basis of what you see. Oh, I can't believe they're wearing that or whatever. We're not to look at people that way. Ignore what you see on the surface. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Paul used to look at Christ and all he saw was a human being. Right? Because you can't see anything else with your physical eye. That's the worldly point of view. When Paul came to faith, he knows that there's a whole lot more to Jesus than what meets the eye. And so Paul is saying here, we don't look at Christ that way. That what you see is what you get. So we're not going to look at people that way. No, what you see is irrelevant. You, it's what you know is going on behind the scenes that matters. And what you know is going on behind the scenes is that Christ died for all. Therefore, all have in some sense died. So then he says, so therefore, if, if, if anyone's in Christ, there is a new creation. And what he's saying there's look around you, there's a new creation. That's how we're looking at the world. Not from a worldly point of view, but from a new creation. Um, and it, it, the old has gone, the new is here. So we're to see, here's the thing, when Jesus died on the cross, everything that could separate human beings from God— was done away with. Uh, In principle, the enemy's uh, hold on us was ended. Uh, They've been defeated. We've been liberated. In principle, we've been set free from all of that. And and, uh, uh, the sin, the whole sin economy has been, the whole judgment economy has been wiped out. It's been nailed to the cross. Everything that could separate you from God has been taken care of. The one thing that hasn't been taken care of is you. And that is, will you accept this? Will you accept this? Uh, So here's the thing. Is this universalism? first thing I want to say about that is, I hope so. Um, love believes all things, hopes all things, bears all things. It, it, if you love someone, you have hope for them. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 13. So to have hope for people, I think it's part of loving them. And so how could you not hope for this? Um, the, the world sometimes says go to hell. But that is not a sentiment that should have any place in any disciple's heart. We should not want Hitler to go to hell. No, love believes all things, hopes all things. But at the same time, there are all these warnings that are serious, that are pervasive, and that warn that if you reject this God of love, you bring death upon yourself. The natural consequences of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Uh, And if you persevere in that, that's— and the Bible speaks about that. I have to say it honestly as though it was final, irrevocable, eternal. I don't think it's endured eternally. Some people think that you'll suffer that eternally. I think— I think it just means that once it's done, it's done eternally. But that those warnings are there and they have to be paid attention to. And so here's how I put it together. And you may have a better way to put it together, but it seems to me that, it, think about it all like this. Jesus accomplished all this. Everything that was separated from God has been removed. We've been, it's all been forgiven. Paul says that explicitly in 2 Corinthians 5. God's no longer holding anyone's sin against them. That is done. The whole judgment economy has been, been, been destroyed. That is done. That's what's real. What's real is that God has included you. God has a bear hug around you. Uh, God's, God's, God's okay with you. Question is, is now, will you accept that? And see, that's what sin is the, our potential to sin is our potential to create our own alternative reality over and against God. To say, God, you know, I, I reject your reality. I want to go my own way. That's what's happening in Genesis 3. That's what we all do every time we sin. We create our own little narrative that makes sense to us, but it's contrary to God. And so, so I think God, the whole point of this is love, and love can't be coerced. And so God is saying, I've done everything here to invite you in. Will you just accept this? And God's making that invitation through us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. We're we're his ambassadors. We're his spokespeople. We are there to explain to people, hey, you've been accepted. God's not holding your sin against you. You've been included. But the fact that people can choose against the truth, can choose against reality, doesn't change the truth or reality. The truth is that the God of love has done everything possible to include every human being. The truth is that God is this desperate woman who's searching for that lost coin, that good shepherd looking for that lost sheep. The truth is that the cross changes everything for everyone and all is forgiven the only remaining question is is will you embrace that but it doesn't affect at all the fact that god is out for humanity and he's relentless that all who were in adam are to be in christ so how does god view humanity if you think of human beings as one being what would god's feeling towards that be you get this captured in a beautiful way in the old testament in, uh, in Hosea, this heart of God. And here it's towards Israel. Israel is a, is a, stands in the place of, of, of humanity here. And here's what it says in Hosea chapter 11, starting with verse 1. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they, they were called, the more they went away from me. And then he says in verse 3, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking him by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of, of, of human kindness, with ties of love. And I've read that, that a lot of Old Testament experts argue that what he's referring to there is they used to have, teach kids how to walk by having straps under their arms. And, and you kind of like walk them like Pinocchio and what's the guy's name, Pincello. Or, and, and so you teach them to walk like this. And he's saying, I led you with cords of loving kindness. So it's a really intimate picture would usually be a mother with, with a child, and God's here saying, that I've, I've, I've had that mothering role towards you. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bend down to feed them. So this is his tenderness. That little baby, my, my precious little baby, my son. If we a God of perfect love, how would it be other than that? But then he goes on about how they have rejected continually, they trusted Assyria more than God and they, they've, they've, they've made idols and, and, and all the rest. And he's, at one point he was saying, judgment's gonna come upon you. But then in verse eight, we read this. He says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? Ephraim is just another word for Israel. How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I let this happen to you? How can I treat you like Admah, Which is just a, a, a secular uh, nation that came under judgment. This is the heart of God. God's torn here. On the one hand, can't enable, gotta let consequences play out, but on the other hand, his love, his compassion wins out. And that's God's heart, I think, towards humanity, towards the human race. It applies individually and applies corporately. Individually, uh, God gets you. This is what I was talking about last week. I I think God gets you and God has compassion on you. God understands you. you The reason why we're always... Not always, but most people are easier on themselves than they are on other people's because we understand all of our extenuating circumstances. Well, if you only knew all that was going on in my life, you wouldn't be judging me so harshly. Um, we need to be projecting that on other people. That, that, that's true of everybody. God, God understands you. He gets you. He knows that. He doesn't like it when we use those excuses, but out of love, he's always going to be refining us. Um, but, but he gets you, and he loves you. It's, it, there's compassion. You're part of team humanity, which means you're part of being made in God's image, which gives you all that value. But you're also part of team brokenness. And no one in team brokenness has any role in trying to judge whose brokenness is bigger than someone else's brokenness because what it means to be broken is that you're broken. And the only significant fact is that you're not whole. You're broken. Join team brokenness. All right? We've got this long tradition that says God is so ticked off at team brokenness, God wants to squish team brokenness and all the rest. But that wasn't Jesus' attitude. Uh, God's in love with team brokenness and God's in love with every individual in team brokenness. And that's why we're not only in team brokenness, we're part of team Christ. We're part of team redemption. Uh, and and uh, God looks at you in, those, in, in that light too. As all were in Adam, so all are in Christ. You're part of team brokenness, you're part of team redemption. His attitude towards you is one of love and one of compassion. And so I, what I've seen is that that's gotta be my heart. Uh, towards not just individuals, but towards humanity, uh, to have god 's heart is to have compassion here 's the thing Let's let 's let second Corinthians five be our guide on this. Look at the world through the lens of Christ, look at the world through the lens of the cross. look at the new creation don 't see people in terms of what 's external in terms of their opinion about when we should open or shouldn 't open or who they like or don 't like, or what they're wearing, whether they 're wearing a mask or not yeah there's a lots there 's a lot of stuff to fight about there. If there wasn't, we wouldn't be fighting about it throughout history. Of course there's a lot of fun, but that can't be what defines the way we look at the world and interact with the world. We've got to look at it with eyes of compassion. It helps me. And I don't know if it will help you, but it helps me to be telling myself, everyone is doing their best, and if they're not, that's up to God. So we leave all judgment to God, right? Judgments come because people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. But I don't know that. And so... If you invite me in on your life and we're walking really close together, or not, I might get to know a little bit, and then I might offer an opinion, and you do it the same to me. But otherwise, I don't have a clue. So I think I, we have to assume that people are doing their best. And it may—you don't know what they had to, to, to work with. You don't know what their life—somehow in their minds, what they're arguing for, as insane as it seems to you, it makes sense in their worlds. Whatever, so assume that they're doing their best, and, and leave, 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 if they, to the degree that that's not the case, leave it to God. So we look at the world through with the eyes of compassion, look at the world in terms of uh, their needs, and let's ask the question how, how can we serve? How can we serve? Same as it seems to you, it makes sense in their worlds. Whatever, so assume that they're doing their best, and, and leave, 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 if they, to the degree that that's not the case, leave it to God. So we look at the world through with the eyes of compassion, look at the world in terms of uh, their needs, and let's ask the question, how how can we serve? How can we serve?
2: All right. Thank you, Greg, for being with us and sharing that. And we just want to reiterate again, um, because if you tuned in at the very front part, hopefully you did, you heard Greg say that if you were seeing this recording, it meant that either he was dead or that our communication (laughs) died, our technology died, and neither is the case. Greg is alive and well, not well. He has a kidney stone. So uh, just be praying for him uh, as he is medicated and waiting to get better. (laughs) With me right now are Dan Kent and Kevin Callahan. Thank you guys for being here today. Kevin, um, you get the Golden Star Award because you're jumping in. At the ninth hour to help us out because Greg was supposed to be here. So thank you so much. All right. <laughs> Are you guys ready for some questions right. that people yes. have sent yes. in? Yes. I'm right. just that's,
3: thinking, that's though, good. of Greg on medication, like uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, what he must be like. So. Right.
2: I, we should call him.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> Ask him some
3: questions. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All
2: right. Well, toward the end of his message and really throughout, least throughout the message, Greg was sharing with us that Well, we're all on team brokenness, so let's get our t-shirts made. Um, We're all on team brokenness, and God doesn't look at us with disdain, though, because of our brokenness. He looks at us with love and compassion. Uh, But that is really hard for people, all of us, to accept the fact that God looks at each of us, all of humanity, with love and compassion at all times. Um, why is it so hard for us to also view humanity in that way? I know as I was listening to Greg both last night and then again this morning, I was convicted. Um, I love people. I consider myself a people person. Mm. But I realized how I can fall into that, man, humanity is just awful. Mm. And um, so much so that now I try to follow things on social media that are like, positive things that people are doing, good things that people are doing for others during this time just to kind of restore my faith in humanity. And I just don't think that's the way we're supposed to look at humanity Mm -hmm. as a whole. Um, Because Christ looks at humanity as a whole with compassion Mm -hmm. and with love. And so we are called to do the same thing. So guys, why is that so hard to do? Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I think that what makes it hard, I I can relate to what Greg was sharing. when you see things in the news, when you see groups of people or hear stories of individuals that have done terrible things or doing terrible things, we tend to generalize that out to all people. Mm -hmm. And if we have a steady stream of that in the news or even just our negative skew in our thinking, you know, we, we will have a negative attitude about humanity in general. I think the opposite is also true though. When we hear a heroic story or see a beautiful mm-hmm. example of self-sacrificial love or somebody laying down their life or caring for somebody, it's, it sort of tends to restore our hope and our positivity about uh, human, humanity. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's why it's important for us to stay in touch with both, that humanity can do humans. Individual humans can do some terrible things. Individual humans can do some beautiful things. Humanity itself is broken and beautiful, but I think we need that steady flow of the beautiful side. Mm -hmm. And just asking God, well, Lord, show us what you see. And I think Greg hit it really well, hit the nail on the head really well when he talked about that sort of summation of Jesus' ministry hanging on the cross as he's being tortured Mm -hmm. by humans. Father, forgive them. He sees past the evil to the good of humanity. And it's a them, it's a plural, Father, forgive them. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's
4: good. The only thing I would
3: I would add to that is, uh, Barbara noticed this, and I, I, I've thought about it ever since. You take anything as an individual, like a little salamander, you know, just a cute little salamander. And it's cute, you know, it's a little slimy and it's kind of reptilian, but it's kind of cute. And you can see the little salamander on the sidewalk. But if you go to a window well and there's a thousand salamanders in there, it's gross. There's something like ah, it's overwhelming. And I think I think on an individual basis, it, it's it's easier for us to process the complexity of a person. But when you multiply that exponentially mm-hmm. to all of humanity, I think our hearts might get, have a tendency to get overwhelmed. And, and I think that's just because we're amateur agape lovers. And I think, mm-hmm. I think some of the things that, that the Bible talks about, about viewing humanity not as this exponential amount of individuals, but rather as this corporate whole, it, it helps us process that exponential data in a way that is a little more compassionate. We can look at humanity as a whole as the son of God or the daughter of God. And, and I think that can kind of help our hearts a little bit. Who is Barbara? Oh, uh, Barbara <laughs> is my
2: lovely wife your better so, half yes
3: indeed <laughs> yes
2: indeed um we had a question that was referring to the uh, in the beginning of greg's sermon when he was talking about what he inherited from his father mm-hmm. and how his dad um kind of could get to be a curmudgeon in yeah. in regards to his views of humanity and and we had people who were like i can resonate with that um, I can get to be curmudgeon-y toward my my thoughts and views of humanity as well, and so how can people escape that? Yeah. What would you say are some practical ways in which people can just maybe just stop themselves when they're recognizing they're having those thoughts and escape that thought process?
3: Mm-hmm. I can I can uh, empathize with this. Can you empathize with this? Oh, for
4: sure. Yeah. Go ahead.
3: I, I have, um, well, here's the thing. I have um, a, a conceptual help, and then I've got like a really crazy thing that can help. So the conceptual help, we kind of talked about on the MuseCast on Tuesday. Uh, Philippians 1, five mm. says that God has begun a good work in you, and we're supposed to have confidence that God is going to bring that good work in us to completion. And that's true for everybody. God has begun a good work in all of the people that we see. And we might look at a person and say, that guy's a total bozo, but we're supposed to have confidence that God has begun a good work in them, and God's going to bring that good work to completion. And so the, the practical conceptual thing that I would recommend is to to grow into viewing people through the lens of, of Philippians one five. Assume that God has begun a good work in them, no matter how annoying or, or ho- maybe even they're hostile, God has begun a good work in them, and he's going to carry it through to completion. And so as a disciple, I can practice this inner sanctum work of imagining how this story is going to come to completion in that person's life um, on a practical level, and this might be a little crazy, and it might not help for everybody, but it's been really helpful for me, and it's been helpful for people that I've taught this to. Uh, I was watching Seinfeld one time, and I just realized that uh, there's a character in Seinfeld called Kramer, and most people are familiar with Kramer, and he's just one of my favorite characters of all time, and he's just so fun. He just comes bursting into the room. He, he, it's not even his house. He goes bursting into his, his neighbor's house, takes some milk out of the fridge. Hey, Jerry, he says, and then boom, he explodes out out of the room again, and he's just so funny to watch. And I was imagining, wow, what it would be like if Kramer was my neighbor. And I realized that would be terrible if Kramer was my neighbor. But on TV, it's so fun. Um, Because on TV, Kramer fits in with a story and he makes the story better. Even though Kramer might do obnoxious things, the story is better. And so one thing that I've been doing that has been really helpful for me is looking at my day as if it's an episode of a sitcom. (laughs) And now people that might normally annoy me and I might get aggravated with, I can think, yeah, but what are they doing to the episode? What are they doing for the story? And it helps me have a lot more compassion toward them. This is helpful for me. If it works for you, that's great. But uh, it's kind of crazy. But uh, that's that's something to try. Something to try.
4: <laughs> that makes me think of just the the story of Jesus and his disciples, where we you know there's such a mix of personalities yeah. there, and and frustrating, mm-hmm. irritating, sort of the, the the rub you the wrong way kind of personalities. But it enriches the story of Jesus. You can see Jesus. Uh, this is his sort of family circle, but all these different, the cast of characters that's around him, he sometimes seems like he gets a little irritated or frustrated, but then he exercises patient love towards them. But the differences and even the irritating differences seem to enhance the richness of that story. And mm-hmm. I feel like Jesus was able to see the value and the beauty, even in the quirks and then the irritations. Um, and I think that's true in our, our real life too. I think it's really important for us to to see how those things can enrich us and fill out what it means to be human.
3: Yeah. Hey, the, the other thing I would say is, you know, we started this sermon off with this this video of how interconnected we are. Absolutely. And, and there's this sense in which we're, we're trying to view humanity as this whole. And um, there's this feeling as if, like, this is some type of trick that we're trying to do in our minds to, let's imagine yeah. that the, the humanity is one. But what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 that's, that's actually the reality. This isn't, like, just a mental trick. We're, we're trying to grow into the truth that we are all interconnected. Mm -hmm. And so these aren't just like parlor tricks to make us feel a certain way. It really is growing into the truth of of the way things are, I think.
2: Absolutely. We are one and we are interconnected and our actions very rarely, if ever, affect just us. And so, what would your advice be to those who say, because this is a very real situation that is just happening, at least in our city, in the Twin Cities, um, there are, and around the country I've seen, there are some protests going on, because people are, um, they're afraid. They're afraid of what's going to happen to their businesses, to their jobs, and, and, and they're protesting and they want, they want the, the safety precautions that we've been guided to follow to be lessened and maybe eradicated altogether. So how can we look at that lens of humanity uh, lovingly when it, when it could appear as if they're being dangerous with, with our health?
4: yeah i've been thinking about that quite a bit since this has popped up um and especially in the last couple days with these protests and my first reaction i noticed was to be sort of that curmudgeon take that posture towards those people Mm. but what you just said shauna i think is really important if we look beneath that behavior that we find to be offensive or selfish uh, dangerous um to see well, what's underneath it and you just mentioned well, people are afraid and I think down deep uh, if, if we can look at that level the the surface behavior is just a the end of a chain of things going on inside of people's hearts and minds and emotions and their life story and if we can sort of imagine what's below the surface almost always there's going to be some kind of pain or some kind of fear and some deep deep value or concern that's feeling threatened and all of us can relate to that. And so whatever's going on on that protest level, I might uh, disdain that or I might be curmudgeoning towards that. But I think if I start to say, well, what might they be afraid about? What The economy is struggling. Their finances are struggling. They're feeling isolated. They're, you know, they're feeling cabin fever. They're not necessarily going to naturally feel compassionate about how, wh- how what I do affects other people. Most of us, when we're feeling threatened, we'll start to just think about ourselves. Mm-hmm. I know that's true of me. And so if, that hap- if I do that, when I'm feeling threatened and fearful, I, I default to me. Well, of course others are going to do that. And so I can be a little bit more compassionate towards them and then wonder, well, what's the fear? Well, oh, there's legitimate reason for fear. There's economic stress going on here. Mm-hmm. And then we start to press into trying to defend our rights and trying to you know, advocate and vie for a better situation for ourselves. That's the most natural human thing in the world. It's still a fallen thing. So I'm not going to excuse that at all. Um, love is to be considering about others ahead of ourselves um, and and willing to pay a price and sacrifice ourselves for that. But love is the first thing that goes out the window, that kind of sacrificial love, when we're threatened, when fear gets kicked up or when pain gets kicked up. So I feel like then we can say, well, I'm like that too in different scenarios. How can I pray for these people? How can I be humble, look at the log in my eye and then pray for the speck Mm -hmm. in their eye? Amen. I have nothing to add to that. Nothing that was, to add to that. Was that. A good
2: answer. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Uh, in Scripture, we can see where it says that uh, just as all were in Adam, now all are in Christ. And Greg mm-hmm. talked about it, that in the sermon. And so, what would you guys say uh, to the question that does that include uh, non-believers or um, people who are agnostic or mm-hmm. who just don't have a, an opinion either way? Yeah. Are they also? In Christ, are they a part of the all?
3: Hmm. Yeah, I think, I hope so. I mean, yeah. I really, like, I think Greg's answer is great. Man, I hope that's true. I mean, I hope that's the case. And I think that we have good reason for optimism about that because uh, a couple things. We believe in a God who is omnimerciful and he uh, overflows with mercy. And um, the other thing, too, is that we, we we believe in a God who is a judge. And that's a big deal because most religious systems they are just that. They're systems. What happens to you after death is mathematical. There's no leeway there. There is no judgment. If you, if you believe in reincarnation, what you become reincarnated at is a mathematical equation that is the mathematical result of what you did in the previous life. There's, there's a harshness to that that we, that we don't have because we believe in a loving judge who looks at our circumstances, who looks at our heart, who looks at our intention, who looks at where we were born, who looks at what advantages we were given and what we weren't, and he makes a judgment. And that's that's something very profoundly unique in in world religions. Um, And 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 you see things in uh, the Bible too. You see in Acts 17 how God is at work in all of the world through the ups and the downs of governments and and what's going on in the nations, that he's at the work in in the hearts of people to get them to reach out for God, to long for God. Even though God's not that far away, he is calling us to reach out to him and, and he promises that he will be found to us if we seek him and, and that's what he's at the work in the whole world he's at at work doing that and and you see the attitude of Jesus I think in I think it's um I think it's Matthew. I can't remember the chapter. I don't know the exact address. I'm sorry. But uh, somebody is casting out demons and they're not doing it in Jesus' name. And the disciples are all astraught about this. Like, wait a minute. He's doing this thing and he's having results, but he's not mentioning you. And Jesus says, if, if they're not against us, they're for us. There's this spirit there that, that Jesus is like, look, the specifics about me um, are not important in, in some sense. At some point, all are saved through Christ. That's true. But there's not a lot of clarity there about you know what exactly does that have to be. It just has to be through Jesus. Um, Satan only has until we die. God has this whole mm. kind of as much time as God needs to, to work our hearts in some way. And we see a couple different things in the Bible. We see on one hand, God is overflowing with mercy and love. But on the other hand, you know, there are consequences for our decisions. And on one hand, nobody who is impure can enter God's presence. But on the other hand, God is calling us all to enter into his presence and he's working in our hearts so that we can enter into his presence. And so what's most appealing to me is this idea that because we all have work to do and and none of us are at the point where we can enter God's presence if it has to be that perfect purity. And so I, I think that God is creative and that God is going to work with us after death and i think we all have work that we have to do now you know historically this idea has been called purgatory and purgatory had had been viewed as this punishment, like man, you have so many sins that you have to pay for, that you need to spend this time in purgatory. But the early church didn't think that. The early church viewed it as this time of, of refining and pr- preparation for for entering into God's kingdom. And and you know the 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 Protestants sort of like reacted against some of the things that the Catholic Church was doing, uh, and they said, oh my gosh, they're selling indulgences, they're using purgatory to make money, basically. And and so the 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 Protestants kind of threw the whole thing out, and I think that we should re-explore that as, as an option for God to bring people into um,
4: Christ's presence, um, people like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So. I'd just like to add to that. That's a t- really tough question, and yeah. I think Greg did a really good job of just kind of holding these two tensions you just made reference to, Dan, about this the amazing breadth and sweep of the offer of life, reconciliation, forgiveness, and love through Christ, But also the reality that, you know, there's something huge at stake if we don't receive that, if we don't accept that. And there's a tension there that has to be held in place. And that that is a tricky one to do. I really think we should talk a little bit more about how, amongst ourselves as Christians and and churches across the globe, about what is the possibility of sort of this post-mortem opportunity for choosing. I think a lot of times we've been told, and I don't know that I necessarily see this as a black and white issue in scripture, but do we just have this life, just our our days on earth to make that decision for Christ? But as Greg preaches all the time, we love does have to be received. It has yeah. to be chosen freely. It can't be forced on us. But what we see happening with Christ is he, he as Greg said in his message, he offers this forgiveness. The sin problem is, is resolved. It's already done away with. It's already been removed. Um, and if I think of it in terms of, well, imagine, um, you know, there's a, where humanity in general is in a, a jail cell or in a prison, and we're locked into sin, the prison is sin, but then the work of Christ just blasts open the door of this, of this jail cell. Um, that, there's a huge change that has happened for the entire group called humanity. But then there's still the need for us to get up and walk out that open door, and and walk into freedom. And I feel like we see this also in the Exodus story with the Israelites, where um, the Israelites were enslaved in the kingdom of uh, Pharaoh, and they were all in uh, in that darkness as the people of God. And then God does this amazing deliverance work. But the Israelites each had to do the sacrificing of the lamb, the painting of the door on the or the the blood on the doorpost. And they had to then walk out into freedom. Mm. So they were, they were released from bondage and then they had to walk into freedom. Mm. And so I feel like that is the choice that God leaves mm-hmm. us. He gives us our dignity, frees humanity because we are that beautiful and precious to him. And then he leaves us with the dignity of then making that choice. Do we want him? Do we want to leave this old life behind? Do we want to enter into covenant with him and walk in fullness of life? Um, and that's a choice that we have to make. Now, can we make that choice after, is there a post option? I believe if, Jesus, if God looks like Jesus and he's infinitely compassionate, he's not gonna, um, allow, he's not gonna just say, oh, you missed the opportunity, or mm-hmm. you missed the boat, it's too late to get on. I mm-hmm. feel like I'm hopeful, just like Greg talked about, mm-hmm. that there are ways, uh, but it's still gonna always have to be through Christ and it's still gonna always have to be a choice we make because mm-hmm. God has given us that dignity as choosers and as humans, and he Amen. wants that kind of love with us. Yeah. Amen.
2: And again, I love that Greg referenced those parables uh, this week as well as last week, because there is no link that God will not go to to reach us, to, to know us, to love us, and to have Him love have us love him in return. But we we get to make that choice, mm-hmm. and we get to choose to align ourselves with that love but also know that there is no length that he won't go to for you. And that to me is absolutely beautiful. We have kind of a follow-up question to that. And so um, when Jesus was on the cross, and as Greg said, with some of his final breaths, he he beautifully and compassionately and astoundingly said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And so the question is, did the forgiveness happen because Jesus spoke it? Um, did they have to ask it for themselves was that was was the transaction between father and son enough and so and Mm -hmm. then if you carry that through generations to us like can we pray for others Mm -hmm. um, for their forgiveness i don't i mean we have to each individual has to accept that right we have to align Mm -hmm. ourselves but um, we were given this model of Jesus praying for forgiveness for yeah. others. And so what do you guys think about that?
4: I'll, I'll start and you, Dan, you can jump on in a minute But you know as Greg was preaching and, and going through the message, you know last week He talked about the, the searching for the lost coin. There's the lost mm-hmm. sheep parable But in Luke 15 it all climaxes and crescendos with the lost son story and in, in with the lost sheep and the lost coin those are um, They're not really choosers in those instances those two stories. They're being found but there's no deciding or choosing. There's no interpersonal relationality in those two stories. And so my mind wants to go to finish those, that series of stories to the lost son, the prodigal son story. Yes. And in that story, we see this amazing same thing where the father who illustrates God um, and the son illustrates humanity. And the son has gone astray and gone off into sin and done his own thing. Um, But the father's love is is a constant, it's steady, it's always there and he's not angry at the son, he doesn't have any sense of retribution, he's not just mulling over how he's gonna punish his son or his son has done him wrong. The story gives us this picture that the father goes to the edge of his property, as far as he can go without crossing the line of uh, um, infringing on the son's free will and daily he's waiting and longing for his son and looking at the horizon until he finally sees the son on the horizon, the silhouette, and he sees the son coming home. And then the father starts to run towards the son mm-hmm. with open arms. And so what we see happening here is that sort of unconditional extension of forgiveness. The father was always, long before the son appeared, he had a posture of forgiveness. It wasn't contingent upon the son coming and confessing. Um, the son doesn't even get through his confession speech. He starts to talk. And then the father cuts him off and extends this amazing forgiveness, reconciliation, family embrace. Mm. He just wants the son home again. And so I feel like that's that beautiful, unconditional extension of forgiveness that Jesus is extending on the cross. Yet the son still had to turn, walk back towards love, walk back towards home. One of the pictures on the Easter kids pictures that was up there as I watched those earlier, they're also beautiful, all these little drawings. One of them caught my eye and it was, where are you? Come home. Mm -hmm. And it was that prodigal son story. Mm -hmm. And the father's always standing there, unconditional, always waiting, reaching out. The son has to come back in. Mm -hmm. So to be in Christ is there's the offer to come back home. But then there's the response to come back home. Mm-hmm. And that's that, it, it couldn't be any other way to be truly love and to be true reconciliation.
2: Right. The door is always open. door is always open, yeah. We need to walk through that. We need that. to walk back yeah.
4: home, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Beautiful. Love that. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. The only
3: thing I would say is, uh, uh, forgive them father for they know not what they do. I think yeah. kind of what you're saying, this isn't something that Jesus is saying, this is my theology of forgiveness. He's just, right. that's, he's expressing that's what heart. God's heart is. That's yeah. right. This is what God's heart is. is right. He has a posture of forgiveness. And
2: that's so, and
3: so yeah, I wouldn't build a theology of forgiveness on that. Right. I wouldn't look at that as God's heart. Yeah.
2: And, and something that we should, um, cause man, we're a part of team brokenness and that means we've experienced brokenness because of our own doing, but also because of the actions of others. And so if there is a way in which we could um, emulate Christ's character is, is to ask him to give us the power and the strength and the want to, to extend that forgiveness to others as well. Not always easy, but, it, but it is an, it's an important thing. Just as God's door is always open to us, I feel like many times we need to allow God to open the door of our hearts to be open to others and um, extend some of that forgiveness as well. It's important. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you all so much because once again, you've sent in incredible questions. Once again, we can't get to them all, but we do thank you for being with us and we thank you for sending your questions in. We're gonna uh, tackle one more and We hope to see you next week. Thank you again for being with us today. Please remember to be praying for Greg. But for our final question, gentlemen, um, we're going to circle back to that scripture where it talks about how all were in Adam and now all are in Christ. And so the question is, how trapped are we all in Adam? And then how free are we in Christ?
4: You take a swing?
3: you want me to start yep. um, well, I think there's a, a couple senses of thinking of being trapped uh, on one hand, the scary the scary way to look at this is like, is there any opportunity for me to be righteous? Is there any opportunity for me for me to be obedient to God. I mean, the, the, the great commission is, uh, teach them to obey my commandments. Well, am I able to learn how to obey God's commandments? Is that something that I can even do being trapped in Adam? And, and, and so on that very personal level, there's, there's that kind of question. And that I've thought a lot about that. And, and um, I, I tend to think that, um, you know, being in Christ and being in, uh, Adam, uh, Being in Christ totally overthrows uh, what's possible for my life. I think that that empowers my life in in a a very profound sort of way. Uh, Something that's really helpful for me is to, you know, because Greg talked about how the church historically has just had this very negative view of people, Uh, just viewed people as worms. And the more negative you can view people, the more spiritually enlightened you are. Mm. That's sort of, uh, you know, there's this strand of church history that has embraced that, which caused this big revolt where all of these people are like, no, there's something really wrong about that. There's something really unholy about that. And they kind of went the opposite direction. If you want to be supportive of people, you can't buy into that. And so there was this sort of rejection of the faith because of this negative view of people. Well, they ended up kind of going the opposite way and saying, no, people aren't fundamentally bad. People are fundamentally good. And so they kind of chased that way. So now throughout history, you've had these these two streams of philosophy saying that people are fundamentally bad. Another one says people are fundamentally good. But I think, that the Bible teaches something profoundly different. I think what the Bible teaches is that we are fundamentally neither good nor bad. We are fundamentally loved. We are fundamentally loved and and goodness and badness is a totally separate category. Uh, You know, because the Bible says, yeah, you have sin that you have to deal with. Salvation is a gift from God. You can't earn it. But then there's all these other passages that talks about God placing before each of us life and death. Blessings and curses, fire and water. And God imploring us to choose the water, to choose the blessings, to choose the curses. So there is this sense in the scriptures that yeah, we are all trapped in Adam, but we also have this incredible choice before us every day. And, and so I think that yes, we are, are in Adam, um, but there's still this opportunity to choose righteousness. You know, and you look so many times in the Old Testament, you have the humanity doing just terrible things. And yet within that, you have these very faithful people that grow up like flowers. And my favorite example of this is Ruth, the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. This takes place during judges. This takes place during the darkest, most violent part of the Old Testament. It's the part of the Old Testament that has led many people to atheism because of how horrible it is. But during that time, this story of Ruth happens. This miserable time in human history, Ruth and Naomi uh, and Boaz express these characters of profound loyalty and faithfulness and godliness, even in the midst of that terribleness. And I think that that's a message for us that, yeah, humanity might have all sorts of problems, but yet God has placed before us life and death, blessings and curses, fire and water. We really can choose to be righteous in that. We can't earn our salvation because salvation is a gift. And a lot of people think, well, if we can't earn our salvation, that means that we can't do anything good. And I think the opposite is true. If we can't earn our salvation it doesn't matter how much good we can do we can be the most perfect people in the world that's not what saves us we are saved because we have a loving judge who accepts us into his family so i think that since we can't earn our salvation i think yeah we have lots of opportunity for righteousness and growth and love and charity and and we can reconcile uh, racially we can we can help the poor we can really do good things uh, and, and so that's that's I'm very optimistic about, about being in Christ. We can do
4: a lot of powerful things.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen to That's
4: that. beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Fundamentally loved, mm-hmm. um, fundamentally loved. I just, the only thing I would add is just to say this, I, I think we're essentially beautiful mm-hmm. to God. Mm-hmm. We're temporarily broken. And I think mm-hmm. the best analogy I can think of is my kids. I love my kids. They're, mm-hmm. But I, I know they're beautiful, so they're just essentially beautiful. They're f- and, they're, and because of that, they're fundamentally loved. Mm-hmm. And I can't deny that there's some brokenness. Um, a lot of that they've probably got from me, right? <laughs> um, but that doesn't change the beauty, the fundamental essential beauty and the temporary brokenness. And, and what Jesus is about then is saying, well, because of that essential beauty, I'm going to restore and mend the brokenness. Mm-hmm. And because the beauty is deeper and it's more eternal and that's the thing that matters most so yes there's brokenness and yet there's a deeper beauty Mm -hmm. and that's what motivates his fatherly heart to come after us and 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 mend and restore
2: Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. And it's something we've said and we continue to say, and I think it's okay to continue to say it, is that uh, the brokenness doesn't disqualify us. It doesn't mean that we're damaged goods. God's love covers all of that. Mm. And when he looks at us, he doesn't see the brokenness as a hindrance. He just sees an opportunity for his love just to to pour upon us like a solve, uh, a a healing opportunity, a a restorative opportunity. And so, yeah humanity, we can louse it up and we can be broken. We are broken. We can louse it up for ourselves and for one another. But when we look to Jesus, when we look to Christ, we know that his love covers and breaks through that and it doesn't disqualify us. It's just a more opportunity for us to to align ourselves with him and to respond um, in love back to him. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being Thank with us you. today. Yeah. Thanks again Kevin for jumping in. You bet. Um we want to let you know about a couple of things going on. Dan and I started a new show this last <laughs> week. It's called The Musecast. And uh, during the MuseCast, we get to dive in a little deeper to the Sunday sermon. And we get to uh, respond to some of the questions that you guys sent in that we didn't get to on Sunday. And you also have an opportunity to send in live questions during the MuseCast. So we hope that you will join us on Tuesday at 4 p.m. It is online, and you can find out details about that on our website. We also are starting another um, fun new initiative on Tuesday evenings and Wednesday mornings, we have what we used to call growth groups. But during this time, the purpose of those groups has changed and expanded and we're, we're thrilled. And we recognize that we have a broader audience. We have a really a worldwide online community. And so we are inviting you to be a part of those gathering groups. Those are happening online. And those are an opportunity for you to get with others online and discuss the sermon to to reflect upon the things that you've heard the things that stand out to you and really dialogue with other people that uh, listen to what you listen to and so again there will be details about that online as well or also on our app and then one more thing we want to let you know about again it is so beautiful to see those those opportunities when humanity is doing the good kingdom things mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we have people who are helping to make masks for uh, a variety of organizations. Um, And so there are details about if you wanna help with that, if you wanna make masks and send them our way, there are details about how to do that on our website. And also cards. There are many um, assisted living communities and Uh, senior homes, that they are experiencing a great deal of loneliness because they can't have the visitors that they normally have. And so we've gotten the okay for some, at least in our area, to be able to send them notes and cards and messages, and if that's something you want to be a part of, you want to bring the kids in on that, please do so. But once again, check our website, I keep saying that. That's where you're going to get the details of how to make that happen. One final thing, at the end of every sermon, we uh, invite you to come and pray with a prayer minister if you want to, and so we know that you still may want to do that. You may still want to do that in the comfort of your home, and so the way in which that can happen is, is if you hop online, you will be directed to a private room with a prayer minister, and it's not a huge; it's not like a, a huge gathering of people. It's just you and uh, our prayer partner in the room um, online online and you can share your request and they can pray with you right then and there. So if you have something that you are believing God for, you have a need, please hop on there right now and let them pray with you. Thank you all so much. We look forward to seeing you next week. Have a great one.